time has come to retool our playing for ourselves, for our students, and for the greater groove. And the big question remains, of course, what is the future of strings? Come on, let's talk about it. It's Tracy Silverman, your host of the For the Greater Groove, the Future of Strings podcast. And this is where we talk about all that non-classical stuff, the cool stuff. And that's what this show is going to be about in particular, speaking with my guest Tomoko Akoboshi. And we are going to be talking about the cool gigs and how to get them. Because for a lot of classical players... You know, they get stuck in the sort of the classical box, doing the same old gigs over and over again. They know they should learn how to improvise or learn how to groove a little better. But they think, you know, why should I bother? I don't have any of those gigs. I don't really know how to get those cool gigs, how to prepare for them, who to talk to, and all that kind of stuff. Because they know it's a little out of their comfort zone. And so that's what we're going to talk about today with my guest, violinist Tomoko Akaboshi, one of the most important contractors in the New York area and internationally uh, for a lot of these cool gigs. And let me tell you a little bit about her um, before we get started. Uh, she was born in Tokyo and attended the Tokyo College of Music. Uh, and since she has performed and coordinated for internationally renowned artists like Alicia Keys, Coldplay, Andrea Bocelli, Maria Schneider, and lots of other cool people... Uh, she's played at Carnegie Hall. She was in a jazz quintet that performed at the White House and has done a uh, just an enormous number of musical theater productions uh, on and off Broadway and has coordinated many of them and is the first woman of color to be a contractor for Broadway musicals. And that's a big deal, and that's changing our world. In addition to performing... She's done a lot of uh, coordinating and music supervising and translating for musical productions, which is kind of an interesting uh, view on the music world that she has. She's coordinated and supervised orchestral sessions in the U.S., Japan, Germany, Australia, Slovakia, Bulgaria, Hungary, the Czech Republic, uh, for film and a lot of uh, video game recording. And as a bilingual coordinator, she's worked as a cultural liaison for Google, the Boston Symphony, the Tokyo Philharmonic, the Czech Philharmonic, Lincoln Center, the Japanese Agency for Cultural Affairs. Tomo aspires to connect Japanese and American cultures and has founded the Tokyo Strings Workshop in 2012. The workshops bring established American musicians to Tokyo, providing a source for Japanese string players to learn to play contemporary American styles like jazz and bluegrass. And more recently, she's really focused on the Resonance Collective, a contemporary chamber jazz ensemble. That's a lot of stuff, Tomo. <laughs> I don't know how you keep all that straight. But thanks wow. for being here, finding time in your very, what must be a very busy schedule, to take a few minutes and talk to us about how you do what you do. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm just, you, I, you don't know how excited I am to be on this podcast. Okay. I'm just thinking, like, what did I do to, to earn a, you know, a spot on this podcast? Oh, but, uh, well, a lot, evidently, <laughs> from the sounds of it. Um, yeah. And you know, you have a very interesting and unusual kind of background. So maybe first, just sort of uh, give us an idea of what that was like and how you started in. Tokyo at the Music Conservatory and now ended up being a jazz player in New York. Yeah, so I mean, you know, my background is, is classical and I was in college in Japan and I think the first year was the first time that I heard the Turtle Island String Quartet album 
uh, Sky Life, and that was, I think, the life changer for me. Oh wow! And yeah, I had a close friend、um, that we just hit it off, and we were like, "Oh my god, this is so cool! We have to try to play this kind of stuff."、Um, but back then, you know, there the internet was different than what it is now.、Um, it's not just everything you just search and. Ten seconds later, you have access to sheet music for free.、Right. Um, so you know we transcribed the whole quartet. Wow, for yeah. real? Yeah, yeah.、Oh, I mean,、man. I have to say, my friend did most of the transcribing, but、uh, <laughs> but it was it was great.、Um, it, I don't think we even used Finale. It was some I don't know cheap. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> notation software.、Um, I still have it, but、um, mosaic、yeah, that, or something. Yeah, something like that, probably. <laughs> but、um, it's that was kind of the start, and I think we would get together in in classrooms and just trying to jam over Sky Life. <laughs> so I know the the backing so well.、Um, <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, but that was the the beginning, I think of. Being interested in in non classical music, and then、um, after I graduated, I came back to the U S. on my own. So my family,、uh, I was here in the states from age six to fifteen, and then we went back. I was in high school and college in Japan, and then I, by the time I graduated, I was doing like pop gigs, TV stuff, and then. I realized、um, I was kind of embarrassed that I couldn't read chord charts, and、mm-hmm. I just thought, "Wow, I've had, you know, twenty years of training,、um, and when there's a a lead sheet or a chord chart, I freeze and can't do anything. This、yeah. isn't cool." And I just that then that moment, I felt like, you know what, I really want to try to learn. How this all works and and play. So, I decided、um, that I would go back to the states on my own. And so I came. I went to Boston first、uh, with a suitcase and a violin. I just decided to move. Wow.、Um, yeah, and I,、um, you know, I, I really didn't have much money, and、uh, I didn't have enough to go to,、uh, you know, Berkeley or, or school. So I just took private lessons.、Um, From Rob Thomas, Chris Howes,、uh, Jason Anik,、um, you know, and made a really great friendship with all the people there, and、um, yeah, that's kind of how how I started. But、uh, going into how also I started the Tokyo Strings Workshop was when I was in Boston the first year. You know, like I had to think of ways to earn income,、mm-hmm. so. I just remember I was like pondering in in my bathtub, and I was like, "Well, what's something I have I can do? I have to make money somehow. Like I'm gonna run out soon." <laughs>、uh, and then, you know, I wanted to do something that was unique to myself. Like, what's something that only I can do?、Um, and then I thought, well, I have all these teachers that now I've connected with. And I was so inspired, and there's really nothing like it in Japan or Asia that where you can learn from so many different teachers and so many different styles, and it was just eye-opening. So I that night, right after the bath, I called Chris Howes, and and I was like, Hey, Chris, do you think you might be interested in you know coming to Japan? Like if I put together a workshop, and he was like, I'm in. And so from there, I was like, okay, I have to think of how to, you know, host this workshop and fly him out and、uh, raise money and、uh, sell tickets. And so that was my first Tokyo Strings workshop. And、uh, interesting. So、yeah. it was just you and Chris the first year. Yes. Wow. And how many years did that did that、uh, take place? Well, you know, I think I did like almost annually or biannually from then, and it kind of still is is going on. And I have different teachers. After Chris, I've had Jason Anik, and then 
most recently, I would say Matus Smoczynski from nice. Poland. Yes, that you know very well. Um, yeah. yeah, so that was kind of how I started. And, you know, now looking back, uh, you know, 10 years later, I remember, you know, Chris was asking me, like, so, like, how are you getting the funds for this, you know, to fly me? Like, do you have a sponsor or something? I was like, oh, no, this is money I saved up. And so now I have like, like I've lit a fire where I I was like, I have to sell tickets to this event or else I'm losing a whole lot of money that I can't really lose. (laughs) So that was a really good, I think, motivator and for me to kind of get in business in the sense that I needed to figure out uh, how the heck I was going to <laughs> monetarily like make make sense of all of it? Yeah. Interesting. So, and I, I want to you know get into talking about the kind of gigs that you that you contract and things like that. But I'm yeah. uh, I'm also uh, fascinated as a entrepreneur myself, sort of you know as a yeah. freelance musician with a podcast and a book and blah blah blah. Um, how you how you made that transition from being uh, first a student and then a teacher at the Tokyo Strings Workshop to being the, you know, artistic administrator, to be the the leader of, of this, I assume, a nonprofit organization. Right. Um, you know, there must, wasn't much of a transition. I mean, I think I was all of those things. I was a student, but I, I am always still a very much a student um but i just felt like i wanted to do something unique that i could do and i knew i had the resources in terms of um knowing the teachers and then coming from a classical background i knew what methods what teachers were really helpful for me as a classical musician and i knew yeah, that a lot of classical musicians out there wanted to, to learn, but they didn't have the resources. So right. I just thought, okay, these teachers would be really good at these classes because I've taken lessons with them. So now I'm going to bring them to Japan. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. And how, how uh, did the students receive all of that? And you know, what did you find from, was there? It's, I, I mean, it's eye-opening because um, there's nothing like it. Um, we don't get, like, international jazz violinists or fiddlers or, or you know, um, non-classical style performances. Um, we just, uh, people don't travel to Japan much. Um, so, so many people, they're, they're you know, I just, it really made me, it fulfilled me when I saw people in the audience when I brought Chris over and they were like in tears. Wow. And I just felt, you know, it's it's a lot of work, it's a lot of risk, but this is why I'm doing it. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's truly a, a mission statement and a labor of love. And uh, that's so cool that you have taken that that mission uh, which you know starts from from a place uh, a musical place and a place of, of wanting to share which which you love with other people and have turned that into a very busy career mm-hmm. uh, an international career and um, helping people make that connect those dots all over the world um, being right. an interpreter and being that in-between person sort of right. a mediator in a sense um, right. between different worlds between um, the corporate world when you're dealing with uh, a Google or right. even a, a you know the Tokyo Philharmonic or the Czech Philharmonic those are you know large organizations they're not right. multinational corporations but they function to some degree like a corporation to be that uh, in-between person uh, to uh, translate between them and the musicians that you're connecting them with um, right. gives you an, a, a unique perspective I think right. Yes, true. Uh, yeah. yeah, on what those what those gigs are. So, so let's talk about that for a second. First of all, 
what are those, you know, how would you define the cool gigs? Like, are, these are live events uh, sometimes, sometimes they're recordings. And what, what are the situations where you are trying to connect an organization with musicians who have non-classical skills? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, what a cool gig, that definition is definitely up to the musician yeah. itself, <laughs> of um, because I might think something is really cool, um, but it's, I don't know, maybe in the middle of nowhere for $30 pay, <laughs> but for right. someone that could mean the world to them. And then, you know, uh, but then if you're playing at MSG with Lady Gaga, for someone that might be cool, but it might not be cool for another. Um, but... For, for, you know, kind of classical musicians getting into to stretching out and doing non-classical things, maybe even pop with some improv or, you know, I would say it, it could be with um, artists that are using string sections in a more unique way than just background uh, string writing. Um, but yeah, there's definitely some sessions. I think it'll really depend on the composer, you know, if they know how to use strings the cool way, um, which is, it's, I would say it's very limited. Um, because so like we know the, the coolness of, you know, a lot of the string ensembles out there, um, but it is, I guess, still a very niche thing uh, when yep. you look at it from a very grand view. So a lot of composers these days still may not have heard Total Island String Quartet right. or, you know, contemporary string writing, what's possible. Um, so it is a very, I think, small group of people that know how to, to really take the string voices and lift them in that contemporary style. Um, so, you know, finding those composers is, I think, one thing. And, um, you know, people who do and implement that in film or recordings or uh, live music, um, that is where, where it's at. But I would say, for me personally, um, jazz composers or jazz artists who write for strings and add strings um, I think is very exciting. Video games especially, the past 15 years the landscapes like have changed completely you know, it used to be very simple music, uh, MIDI um, you know just written on software but now that companies and composers have proven that it can be like a film budget where you want a full 100 piece orchestra right. and and now that there are video game concerts everywhere in the world that um, succeed so well because you already can fill a thousand um, seat hall with people who already know and identify with the music right. so now that industry has gotten so big as you know nashville is is i've gone a few times to record there um it's gotten so big that it, the landscape has has changed for uh musicians and recording and and in a good yeah. way yeah yeah it's great and it's also bringing a young audience to orchestral concerts exactly you know, exposing exactly. them to to this you know live acoustic experience um and who, who besides yourself, uh, contracts this stuff? How does a classical player um, go about broadening their, their scope a bit, you know? Right. I think for recording, you know, it's the very important part is being able to play with click in time. And, you know, uh, sometimes I do feel coming straight out of the, the classical world we definitely did not train for that Mm -hmm. um and there is a certain way i think kind of of playing as well like for instance like you know if if we're lightly landing versus we are starting 
as soon as the click, you know, you kind of want a bite to the bow to articulate um, that kind of thing. It's just you have to develop that kind of ear, I think, um, and record yourself and, and see how it, uh, hear how it's different, um, you know. So there are, I think, you know, a few people that are big contractors out here that do um, recording sessions, if we're talking about recording sessions. Mm -hmm. um, but then there are so many people that are, like my colleagues, uh, that put together a group um, of people. It might not be, you know, 70-piece orchestra, but chamber orchestras. And so I would say the answer to the question of, you know, who hires these people, it's contractors, but also your colleagues, composers, music directors, music supervisors. Um, so it's a lot of people, and that's why I think everyone should have this network and always be aware, always be professional, whatever gig you're at, everyone's always watching, you know? So, like, for a good example, I I got my first Broadway gig playing because I played weddings with this with one person. But I think I because you know wedding gigs were my you know really important gigs back then. I really put a hundred percent in, and I prepared, and I think I was professional, and that got me a Broadway gig. So it's you know a lesson learned is always be the best um in any any situation for sure yeah. yeah yeah so let me ask you if you're hiring for a session or an event that you know is a non-classical kind of thing and is going to require certain other kinds of skills what are those skills that you look for uh that are kind of prerequisites for you in other words what are the skills that people should work on in order to be sure that they are prepared for these kinds of gigs um is it the ability to improvise chopping chord chart reading uh, you know like a jazzy vibrato and slides that sound authentic uh ghosting grooving uh, what what are the things that you look for it's always great to be able to read chord charts um and to play uh inner voices especially because you might find a chart with um just the chord chart and uh, the melody so especially if you're a cellist um being able to play bass lines is a really great skill to have and then inner voicings um, would really be helpful too. Um, I would say for vibrato, you know, and just general time, good time is really helpful when you're playing sessions um, and how you're feeling, let's say, if they're short quarter notes or longer ones, um, are they groovy, are they swung? Um, and especially for, for some, you know, uh, show type tunes that have a groove or swing or, um, jazz feel to it, I think just having, um, an understanding of what that should sound like is really important and kind of being sticky on the bow always, uh, comes out better in sessions, I think, than a very airy, bow with lots of vibrato so having a great sound without too much vibrato and having a clear sound from the beginning of the sound where like the click would start is a really great i think way to practice um you can even start in garage band and record yourself and see exactly where your note starts producing and it should line up with the click um, and I think that's a really important uh, for session players. Uh, sometime last year, I took a workshop that you offered, which was kind of on this subject about how to uh, get employed and and to uh, um, find find this kind of work and how to how to do it, how to how to approach the contractors and. 
you had some very interesting advice. A lot of it had to do with just general good networking skills um, and gig skills like show up prepared, don't be late, be appropriately dressed, uh, you know, all the usual um, professionalism uh, things that that uh, you know people need to be aware of if they're new new to the scene. Um, but you also mentioned uh, something I thought was very interesting was to have this sort of elevator speech prepared for yourself when you approach a contractor or uh, just somebody who you think may be in a position to hire you. Um, uh, and especially important for people uh, for whom English is not their first language. I would love to hear you um, talk about that for a moment. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I see. I, I am not, uh, my, my native language is Japanese. And um, I, I didn't go to high school or college here. So my, you know, English education kind of stopped at middle school. So yeah. I felt like I really needed to work hard to, to get to write, to be able to write emails and to speak the way I do. And there's so many just nuanced things um, that I just, you know, it's hard for me to understand and like movie references or just things that culturally are very different um, for me. And I think it's important, um, you know, for people who, whose native language is not English, because in America, I think I've seen that you have to be confident and you have to sound it has to be clear, you know, how you speak um, or else, you know, people would get worried. Oh, you know, what if they don't understand the gig details? Um, right. I'm worried. Uh, so maybe I shouldn't call them, etc. Right. Right. So right. even just emails, you know, and, and responding, um, you know, uh, just having kind of a clear way of, of communicating even if it's not the whole language, you know, gig language is very, a small dictionary, you know, just right. saying confirmed or um, got it, understood, that kind of thing. So I yeah. thought, yeah, I've just seen my also community kind of struggle uh, getting gigs um, just because they're not confident with their language. I kind of wanted to make that that comment, I think. Yeah, yeah, a very important one. Um, and also, as a woman, do you feel that working uh, in New York that you need to work a little harder than some of your male counterparts in order to maybe prove, uh, you know, your, your worth or your competence or something? Yes, uh, well, absolutely. And um, Interestingly, as a contractor, I think I've now dealt with more uh, people that are kind of higher up in terms of, you know, who, who have the financial control, let's say producers, um, that treat people not so well and fairly. So I've definitely um, had people that, you know, just because I'm um, a woman and they see that I'm not a native um, and especially I did you know a lot of I started recording contracting in my 20s um, I would be really looked at as you know just an assistant girl uh, right. and I would be treated as such um, interesting yeah um, and it's interesting how I've also evolved from back then um, to now how I would deal with things like that um you know in japan it's it's culturally we're we're told oh don't don't make waves just follow the rules if right. someone treats you poorly just let it go um and i would say i usually do that um kind of because my main focus as a coordinator is to deliver the final product you know um 
I also understand that even if someone is talking to you or treating you poorly, I definitely tried to focus on my job and my work and what is my role in this. Um, and there definitely were projects that I would, you know, recording sessions every day. I would go home and cry in the hotel. Um, you know, there are definitely harsh things that happen. And I don't think, you know, anyone has to to deal with that or, or no one deserves to be treated that way. Um, but you find your own way of kind of fighting back, whether it's you can speak up, you don't have to, but letting go of it internally in some way. Yeah, not... not making your sense of self-worth be attached to that exactly exactly that's your victory you know yeah. whatever action you take um that's the the victory yep yeah. yeah 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 question are there any sort of um do's and don'ts especially don'ts i'm interested in because we've talked about some of the do's um when you put somebody on a gig Right, and let's say, especially if you get somebody who's very ambitious, who really wants to, you know, yeah. get started, get busy, be busy, wants to, you know, so so many young musicians kind of hit the road like this. So like, I'm gonna dive in. I know I did, you know, uh, when I was out of school, you know, dive yeah. in and get every gig I can possibly yeah. get. Do yeah. five week weddings a weekend, take whatever yeah. recording gigs. Um, Somebody like that who's maybe a real type A classical <laughs> player uh, or is just very ambitious, are there mistakes that you see they, uh, uh, happen in terms of what people like that might say to a producer, uh, mm -hmm. contractor, conductor, um, section leader, uh, or just um, too yeah. much showing off or right. things like this that, that you can give a little advice to maybe some of some listeners who are hoping to get into this field and don't want to make those mistakes right i would first say kind of reading the room and knowing what your job and doing that job well is the first thing so um you know you don't have to assert and make this room or project or show or um, recording about you you know, kind of feeling the, the vibe of, okay, what's the hierarchy here? Who's in charge? Am I second violin? Uh, how can I, if I'm second violin, how can I support the first violin? How can I support the producer? What is the goal of this project for the people who are important? And I think asking that question and making it not about yourself is always going to go really far and yeah. yeah if if the final goal is to make a really good recording then you should do your job as a player really well you know rather than making it known that you want the next gig yeah. um and that's uh, that to me will be if i was seeing that i would hire that person more than if they came to me and said, I want the next job, but didn't do, you know, the job well. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's, I think, the first thing. But then I have, I will have to say, I've seen people who do that and, you know, still go up higher in the ranks. So I guess <laughs> it is like a kind of a free-for-all situation, but you do find your people. Uh, but if, it, if we're in terms of um, group sessions when you're not the soloist, um, I think having a more community mindset and seeing where you are in the job, what your role is. Right. Um, because when I'm playing in a session and someone called me for it, even though I'm a contractor, I don't try to, to, you know, say anything about the contracting because that's not what I was hired to do today. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and are those red flags if somebody, you know, um, you know what are, what are some of the things that you see in players that you go, oh, I'm never hiring this person again because... Mm. <laughs> there's <laughs> there's <laughs> definitely a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that comes up, huh? Yeah, that comes up. Um, 
what are those red flags? I would say like a small red flag that you can definitely avoid is reading the emails carefully. Um, so a lot of people ask questions, I think, without reading the emails. Right. And the answer is in the email. Yeah. So it does um, kind of... Uh, so let's say I'm hiring 70 people and a few people ask me, oh, what time is call? Uh, you know, I notice right away when only two people out of 70 people ask me that question. It's yeah. clearly like it, it kind of leaves a note in your head. Oh, OK, they're not reading the, the details, which makes you worry a little bit like, hmm, uh, can I yeah. count on them for exactly? stuff so that's one very easy thing that you yeah. can avoid yeah very cool mm -hmm. you know i'm interested um in how uh interpreting for artists and productions did that give you any insight into how those companies worked you know when you see how symphonies or um i don't know what other uh kinds of projects that you were acting as an interpreter, did that give you any extra insight into musically how, how what they're looking for? And maybe not, but I don't know. I guess yes and no, because I would say yes, because, you know, seeing kind of the higher hierarchy of how things function and the conversations that producers have. And then, you know, it goes to the orchestra hiring uh, let's say contractor and then it goes to the whole orchestra right. seeing that is is always very helpful because you know that as a player some things you you can't ask for too much because I know what how involved the planning is for the producers right um, and it, and it's a, a lot of work as well so uh, you know, asking for for changes or or accommodations. Sometimes I understand it's just not possible when you're managing a hundred people. Yeah. Um, so some yes, I I would definitely say that experience helped, and I was able to really build relationships. I think with conductors or supervisors, so that definitely uh, I think helped. Um, but then when I say no is um, every, you know, ecosystem in each city is so different. And the bigger productions like a full orchestra gig and how um, New York functions in the way, um, I think there are smaller uh, ensembles in New York, I would say, um, just because also large recording studios um, are kind of dying and you know budget wise also um, especially union uh, gigs they're the size of the orchestras are shrinking and they have been so yeah. you know those are those function just differently from a let's hire 100 people for an orchestra um, those tend to be a lot of I think you know, colleagues hiring each other. Um, and so that's a completely different system. Yeah. And yeah, you have to kind of learn how each scene functions, who are the key players in the scene that you want to be in. Wow. And, um, you know, really, I guess, building relationships with those people, um, not just surface relationships and I think that would be my biggest advice if anyone is listening here that want to build a network um, is that you can't really go to someone and say hey give me work you know it's it'll benefit me but from the person hiring you how does it benefit them yeah what can you offer think about what support professionalism or playing you're offering and also, you know, building a relationship, a true one isn't just about texting them and being like, hey, I'm around, give me work. You know, it's about really knowing them, understanding them, building a friendship that's not about 
taking from the other yeah. person. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, for me, like the, the clients that, that I have now, it took about 10 years to build those relationships. So, right. you know, it's not going to be overnight and you have to be, that's why it has to be true, real relationships, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, it's, uh, I think it's really remarkable how your insight from as this sort of in-between person between the larger organization and the musician gives you a perspective that as most gigging musicians, you know, we show up to the gig and we're ready to complain generally about something not being right, the lighting or the temperature <laughs> or whatever, sure. right? And, sure, and we're just sure. sort of ready to, to grumble. Uh, yeah. Or, you know, or if we have a little bit better attitude, you know, we come in and just do the job and, and we don't really think of the bigger picture. We think about our part. Am I prepared? Am I doing okay? Uh, right. Am I cutting it? Or will I right. get called for the next gig? Um, but the, you know, the producer and, and somebody like yourself is working with intimately with the producer on getting all this together. The big, bigger picture of that is a very different viewpoint and uh, I, I do think that it would be just uh, incredibly uh, useful for most gigging musicians to at least try to imagine what that is from right. from the perspective of the producer like what are they looking for in an orchestra player you know they're you know um, yeah what, yeah what's, and the, what's the goal I think what would help is you know if you especially if you're a musician looking to do non-classical things like putting uh, a band together you know when you're the leader and when you're organizing and when you have to deal with the finances you see oh this is what it takes oh if i'm on the other side next yeah, time exactly i should be helpful in exactly this and yeah. how helpful it can be just to have a musician shut up and do their job <laughs> you know <laughs> how useful that can be just to stay out of the way sometimes exactly you know? exactly yeah <laughs> and you'll you'll see and i think that's important actually an important lesson if you want to know try to be on create an opportunity for yourself to be in the leading role and see if you can put together a group of music musicians and you know, yeah. see Who would what you call? Like. Would you call yourself for that gig? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, actually, that's <laughs> a good point. Or are you too much of a of a pain to be to put on your own gig? <laughs> true, true, true. That's a good good you know, point. <laughs> um, talk for a second about the Resonance Collective, uh, because this is something I know that's dear to your heart, and yes. uh, which is a very cool group. Yeah. So, um, you know, like I said, I had always been interested in non-classical styles uh, since college and then I was kind of set to find uh, and be able to play non-classical styles uh, all throughout my 20s and then when I moved to New York I you know there are such phenomenal string players um, it's just also a mecca of, of fiddlers jazz violinists um, you know just all sorts of styles um, but one thing I did notice was that um, a lot of people were more like soloists and when we when I would try to put like a reading together it didn't always melt like an ensemble like a classical ensemble should um, with kind of this really um, chamber type four people, five people sounding like one voice. It was really hard to find people that did both. Hmm. And I think it still is um, because those are different techniques, I would say, yeah. you know, right? Like having your own voice, being a soloist, speaking up uh, versus really having an antenna to blend. Yes. and and. Sorry, to just jump in here a quick second, hold that thought. Um, this idea of playing rhythm strings, um, you know, uh, rather than just being the soloist, the lead melodic player, but doing this rhythm function where you're really functioning almost as a chordal instrument or right. one half of a chordal instrument, depending on how many strings you have. Uh, this idea of keeping time, being supportive, backing up somebody else as a string player is a very non uh, it's not something we're really taught 
uh, frequently. You know, we're always taught how to be the soloist. And often, unless you have a great chamber music coach um, and you're a violist or a second violinist uh, or a cellist, uh, you know, you don't focus on that stuff. Right. And certainly right. not in the non, you know, and, and in Mozart, maybe, you know, you're used to the chugga 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 chugga, the inner voices and have right. our rhythm groove voices, but it's not the contemporary jazz or rock or hip hop kind of uh, idiom. So playing rhythm in, uh, you know, and playing as functioning as a chordal instrument outside of the classical genre is a real, is like two already you know, foreign things for a lot of string players. Exactly. Yeah, and um, I guess that's the reason why why I kind of started it. And I felt like there was space to kind of innovate technique that could be both. Um, you know, like groove playing, but also just really... Um, the, the chamber type one unison voice having having that voice I think um, there's just space to uh, explore what I guess I would say chamber jazz um, now that a, a lot of I think big bands are adding strings um, how do we play with horns um, etc I think I just found there was space and to be explored and so that's kind of my mission. Also, I think that would help composers realize, oh wow, there are string players that can do this type of playing, and now I can write for them, now I can write new technique, and so I'm hoping it kind of becomes, you know, a more, uh, just larger picture, uh, culturally, where we kind of expand um, the techniques. Yeah. You and me both, the future of strings. That's yeah. that's what it's all about. That's the theme. <laughs> and you're a founding member of this group. You, in fact, this is kind of your baby, or or is it? Uh, Definitely, yes. Yeah. It is my baby. Yeah, it's been <laughs> it's been you know in the works for a long time, and I think it also just an accumulation of over the years of doing the workshops and just being so um, in love with with you know, the non-classical style string playing that you and many people have innovated. um, And I think that's one of the the greatest things um, that I've seen in in this country is is just um, the uniqueness and and how people are really pushing boundaries. And uh, it's just so inspiring. And I, um, because I fell in love with it so much, it's kind of just my ongoing passion that's so that's so beautiful so beautiful i know we've had this has been a lovely chat is all wonderful information but you know why i've really called you here and that's to play oh. around of not my gig oh my god <laughs> part of the show everyone dreads yes yes so tomoko akaboshi founding member of the resonance collective we're going to find out how much you know about the resident collective what Oh my God. The Resident Collective is a group of artists, curators, and community service advocates 
with a passion for connecting people by hosting cause-focused events, we bring together locals for a night of engagement, art, and altruism. That's the resident collective. What city are they in? Is it A, Chicago, B, Houston, or C, L.A.? It sounds a little, like, vague. And <laughs> to me, this ex explanation. So I would say maybe, like, it can be, like, a very airy type, like, oh, we gather around. I would say L.A. You are absolutely right. Yes! <laughs> it is a very California-based, <laughs> the Resident Collective, yep, they're in L.A., and they do regular curated events. Are those events A, weekly, B, monthly, or C, quarterly? <laughs> I would say monthly. You are right. Yes. <laughs> you are Event right. organizer here. <laughs> See? It's definitely a, a collective thing. Okay. Yeah. Two for two. The yeah. Resident Collective has a list of six causes that they focus on. Which of these is not one of their six causes? Okay. Is it A, sports, B, housing, or C, food? I'm going to guess, oh, this is a hard one, uh, sports. You are on it. Yes! What can I say? Three for three. <laughs> you killed it. Yay! <laughs> Crush the resident collective. <laughs> wow. That's definitely as a uh, as a organizer of your own collective, there must be some collective consciousness. So. Totally, totally. Well, Tomo, thanks so much for taking the time in your very busy schedule. Uh, I think this has been incredibly helpful to a lot of uh, players uh, to really just get that perspective of what, what it feels like on the other side of the music stand yeah. there. And yeah. uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, I'm just very honored and I, I feel I, this is like the highlight of my career. Oh, please, I hope not. I certainly hope not. <laughs> no, um, I'm, I'm just so thankful and um, I'm, you know, you keeping pushing boundaries and it, it is very inspiring and it's for everyone out there in the world. So um, thank you. So well, we're both fighting the good fight, and uh, I'm doing what I can to spread the word, but you're doing even more by hiring people for those gigs. So bravo for you, and yeah. thanks so much, Doma. appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is great. Thanks for listening. If you dug what we're talking about and you want to dig in deeper, please check out the For the Greater Groove Facebook group where I post about each of my guests and where you can leave your comments and opinions. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And if you're digging the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave me a rating or a review. Thanks a lot and groove on.